again for two differing generations of professional wrestling fans to go through the back catalogue, the required reading list, as it were, of professional wrestling as we watch every match that we can get our hands on, the, the doyen of duking it out in the ring, Dave Meltzer, has rated at least five stars. Yes, at least five stars. We'll get to that when we have to get to that. But anyway, this is Let Me Tell You Something. I'm your co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Simon Cross. And we are at the start of a trilogy of matches that we will be covering uh, in this series. Although, to be fair, these weren't just one part, chapters one, two, and three of one single story. It's just these are three matches involving these two greats of professional wrestling. Uh, and these are the three that Dave Meltz considers of a five-star, or at least in 1986-87, he considered of a five-star caliber. And it is between arguably the greatest wrestler of all time, and it's possible that even Dave Meltzer would argue in favour of that in the Nature Boy Ric Flair, making his first appearance on this show, taking on the second-generation star Barry Windham. And I think it's obvious that Ric Flair was a name that is synonymous with having great matches, and so maybe not so much to an extent to that extent, Simon. Ah! Thought I'd uh, steal your spot there, just like how Barry Windham steals the figure four leg lock. Um, he is. Um, it's it's the NWA Battle of the Belts two event uh, in Florida. This one is, which is the first non-Japanese match that was given five stars. We're in our seventh outing, and we're finally in the uh, birthplace of professional wrestling. That many people would argue the old. U.S. of A. And Simon, I'm assuming you were greatly aware of Ric Flair, but were you greatly aware of Barry Windham before we went into this wrestling odyssey that we're currently journeying on? I'd heard the name before. Um, uh, that A lot of people talk about how he was just sort of a perennial bridesmaid, never the bride, when it came to eating at the top table, mm. uh, so to, to speak. Mix, to mix metaphors there. To mix some metaphors up there. Um, he did win the NWA title, um, but a lot of people say that when he did it, it was sort of like was with not much fanfare and not much... Not well, I mean, up. in that situation, he literally uh, was was doing so. Ric Flair hands him the belt. He snatched it away from Flair and then just like, all right, I'll beat you for it in a couple of months, which is what he did. Um, it's interesting though now we get to Barry Windham now when you talk about Ric Flair and the great rivals that he has there are so many obvious names there's your Harley Races your Dusty Rhodes your Ricky Steamboats um, and those would have been Magnum TAs and in those situations with Harley Race Ric Flair was the up and comer as it were he was like the Okada to Races Tanahashi the uh, or in a more recent example the Drew McIntyre to his Kurt Angle as it were, uh, the younger generation, and then when he finally defeated Harley Race to win his second world title in uh, Starcade 3, that was the official passing of the torch. And then he had his contemporaries, his peers, in the Dusty Rhodeses and the Ricky Steamboats and the Magnum TAs. But then coming to Barry Windham, this is the first of three classic rivalries for Ric Flair, where it's he that's the grizzled veteran against the younger, up-and-coming person that's trying to dethrone the head of the herd, as it were. And those three, of course, most obviously being Barry Windham, 
Lex Luger and Sting, and these are guys that over the next few years, 1986, 87, 88, 89, Ric Flair would have a number of great matches with. But Dave Meltzer didn't rate any of the matches he had with Lex Luger five stars. He didn't rate any of the matches he had with Sting five stars, although the first classic match that they had, the original Clash of the Champions, was the first match that Dave Meltzer ever gave the four and three quarter star rating to. little fact for you there. So it came close, but it was Barry Windham that maybe doesn't get remembered as well as Lex Luger and Sting, but arguably the better worker out of all three of them. Well, I don't know if there's that much of an argument to it. Um, so, Simon, with Barry Windham, what, what do you think was noticeable about what the attributes that he had, maybe in comparison to the more famous rivals of Lex Luger and Sting? Um, well, height really works for him. He's a, he's a big, tall lad. Not not tall in the sense that the classic like monster big dude sense just sort of gangly tall sort he's of relatable lanky. tall yeah he's lanky he's like if peter crouch had a more calorie filled diet he might if he filled out he might look a bit more like barry windham does <laughs> yeah no totally i um I think it's sort of like if you you know like the big guy you know for like a place for the pub team and you just put him at centre back he's he's that kind of tall he's not kind of Jack dude on a beach tall well he doesn't wrestle big either uh, maybe no. tall, maybe as he works as a heel at times he would work bigger but he was never a monster wrestler even though he had the height of a he would stand eye to eye with a. Braun Strowman probably. I, I think Braun Fla- Strowman probably is about his height, but he's just yeah. Flair's not a short man. But Flair's Wyndham about does. six foot, six one, but Wyndham's yeah. noticeably taller than him. And um, I think also one of the things that maybe was an issue, one of the things Wyndham had that the others two didn't have as much was versatility. The fact of the matter is, when the WWE bigs up the four horsemen, the one that's on the DVD cover and the group that got inducted into the Hall of Fame included Barry Windham, which was the third incarnation of the four horsemen, the only time the four horsemen held all four of the major belts at one time, which was Flair as the world champ, Anderson and Blanchard as the tag team champs, and Barry Windham as the US champ. And maybe it's because of that versatility that Barry Windham would change backwards and forwards between face and heel quite regularly. Whereas, and whilst Lex Luger did do that a fair bit as well, whereas Sting was just babyface from about 87 all the way to the ridiculous Russo booking era of the uh, early, uh, the late 90s. No, 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 that was, that was Wolfpack Sting. He wasn't a heel. This was, Ah. it was, it was just Russo Sting. That's all you need to know, really. Um, but this is interesting as well, is that at this point, 1986, this is really coming towards the end of the time where Ric Flair as the NWA world champion meant the touring champion, that Harley Race had been, that Lou Thez had been, that Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr., all of those characters have been, where they're going from territory to territory, they're fighting a Von Erich in Texas one dark night, and then they're fighting in St. Louis the next night, and then they're off in Japan taking on Giant Baba or Jumbo Saruta or one of the other guys uh, of that time. Now it's it's, it's going to get to the point where essentially the Jim Crockett promotions, and then especially when that gets purchased and turned into WCW with Ted Turner, it becomes just that. It's just the number two promotion, and that is what the NWA world title is to be defended in. 
Um, and so Ric Flair is still at this point that touring champion who is a heel in some territories, maybe a face in his home North Carolina territory. <clears throat> but that's what makes these... And he's going around just having all these 60-minute matches with all the, with the local talents and making them look great. Um, Boss also having to make himself look great in the in the interim as well, and I think that's reflected in this match. Uh, when you when we compare it late to the later two matches, it's a lot more even. It's a lot. Flair cheats, but he doesn't cheat to a ludicrous degree. He's no. not the dirtiest player in the game. The only thing I can think of is him holding the ropes when he's got Baron Windham in the figure four at one point. Yeah, oh, and he um he shoves an official. He shoves yeah. the ref. Yeah, and then the ref just shoves him straight back. The ref, uh, Bill Alfonso, of course, to be of later ECW managing Rob Van Dam and Sabu fame and Taz, um, and also it's interesting that because we, we get a bit of a promo before this match, and it's a pre-match promo where Ric Flair is in a much more subdued mood, a lot calmer, a lot more measured. I think he's sort of psyching himself up for the match, as it were, as opposed to your traditional. Him in the TV studios just yelling down, yelling at the mic <laughs> and yelling at Nikita Koloff and Dusty Rhodes and everyone to come and line up and then making allusions at the 19-year-old girls that are cut to in the crowd. Um, <laughs> that's slick It worked. It was the 80s. I suppose. Um, which was interesting. It was a lot more reverential, a lot more respectful. The interviewer was saying, you're the best wrestler I've seen. And Ric Flair saying, yes, I believe I am. I have that confidence. But it's not like... An arrogant, well, it is an arrogance, but it's like a belief of a champion. Do you, do you know what? Um, do you get where I'm coming from? Yeah, yeah. It's not like oh, I'm the best, and I've not backed it up. He's he's backed it up, and that's what's given him the confidence. Mm. His results are begatting the confidence, so he can mm. sort of go, well, I am where I am. Yeah. So then he makes his entrance, not to thus spoke Zarathusa or Zathusa or however we're pronouncing it. I'll but take to... your word for it on that one. Bill Collins and Philip Bailey's Easy Lover. It is, a, it is such an 80s moment, uh, just watching Ric Flair walk into Easy Lover. And it you know seems what? almost as apropos. It works. Yeah, it does work. For Ric Flair. Um, so yeah, like I said, this is him going around from territory to territory. This isn't a Jim Crockett promotion show. You can see in the turnbuckles, I think it says CWF, which I assume is the acronym for the Florida Territory at that point. Um, it's interesting as Barry Windham as well. At this point, he's... So this is February of 1986, so he has been in the WWF only a few months earlier as the tag team champions with Mike Rotunda taking on the likes of the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov, and they dropped the belts in October, I think, of that year, of 85, to the Dream Team, um, Greg the Hammer Valentine and Brutus Beefcake. And... It's interesting, actually, when you look at when you look at all the tools that Barry Windham had with his size, his look, his abilities, his second-generation pedigree as the son of the great Blackjack Mulligan, who Ric Flair had both feuded and tagged with in the past. I think he and Blackjack Mulligan might have held tag team titles together at one point as well. Um, Ric Flair was in a few tag teams back in the 70s and 80s with uh, Ric Flair, Paul Jones, and I believe Blackjack Mulligan was another one. Or I think they might have traded the US title. I might be wrong there. Um, but anyway, Barry that just Windham... highlights um, Flair's longevity in general, though. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. yeah. Barry Windham's um, just is it, he's got that second generation innateness to him. I suppose you can see in the likes of Randy Orton as well. He's it seems like he just he knows the ring. He's got yeah. the, every genetic tool that you need to have. 
And I was thinking about this because I was listening to a podcast uh, snippet on YouTube from Jim Cornette's podcast. And he was asked, who could Vince McMahon have tried to helm the WWF's national expansion with if either Hulk Hogan had never left the AWA or decided to stay in Japan? Or, you know, thank goodness it didn't happen for everyone's sake, uh, suffer a terrible injury and have to retire from wrestling a la Magnum TA around this time. And the names that were popping up, they were talking about Kerry Von Erich, they were talking about Junkyard Dog, Superfly Jimmy Snooker, and Austin Idol was another one that was floating. And I think there are a lot of ways that Vince could have potentially seen Barry Windham being the guy to have been the champ. He had the height, he had the ability, he was a decent talker, um, he, he could do the babyface fire fantastically, it's just the case that a couple of things going against him. One, I don't know that he would have wanted to wrestle at that kind of a schedule that Hogan had. He was a man that, I'm not saying that he was known to be lazy, but he could definitely drift in and out with his interests as time would go on. Okay. And Not unlike Orton at times, I guess. Yeah, at times maybe. And also just physique-wise, whilst he wasn't in bad shape, he's certainly not got any kind of... He, he's never, never had any real definition to his physique at any point. At this time, he's quite, again, he's quite lanky, no real muscle definition or anything. He's in good shape, but he's not in a, you know, he's not going to be on the cover of Men's Muscle and Fitness magazine or anything like that. Yeah, he's he's just got like a natural sort of assurance to him, uh, to heart to your second generation point there. What I would also say as well is... He wrestles like an athletic style, but not like as like a super athlete. He just seems like um, just the local jock kid who's just like trying to like fancy his chances on the national stage. You know what yes, I mean? he's a lot like the Von Erichs, how the Von Erichs wrestled as well. He's got that classic wrestler, southern baby face, whips the hair around, gets excited, pumps his fists to the crowd when he's got a, when he's a house of fire making his comeback. Although this is, like I said, this is a lot more of a sporting endeavour compared to the latter two matches that we're going to talk about. Uh, it's a lot more even on the mat. It's on the mat for a long time. It's worked at a slower pace. It's worked at a fairly slow pace because this match goes about 48 minutes, I think. About 45, 48 minutes. Might it's be the longest short. of um, the ones they have. It's the longest match we've covered so far as well. Yeah, for now. And it was, and this was how Ric Flair worked. He went and had these. I mean, Ric Flair just has to be considered one of the greatest conditioned wrestlers of all time. His level of fitness is absolutely staggering, really, especially when you consider the lifestyle that he was leading at this time as well. I, I mean, he's just a genetic freak for being able to do all. He of must. That he stuff. must have some sort of genetic thing going for him. Yeah. He's got the Keith Richards thing. He's just got the life force. To quote P. Diddy, British fuckers just don't die. <laughs> He's, um... It's weird, because the, for the first part of the match as well, um, for, the baby face just seems to dominate and doesn't... Really, I thought this was a lot more of a back-and-forth match over time. There was no real period of dominance for either man, as I saw it. Well, you have, you have the, um... I think it all comes about, and I don't know if this is intentional or not. I think they sort of had to semi ad lib a bit. It sort of stems from when Wyndham Irish whips Flair, and he goes into the ropes, and so just 
it takes a nasty sort of whiplash. Yeah, it seemed like he leaned in too early. Maybe it looked like quite a big ring. Maybe he was expecting like an eighteen by eighteen stride, and it turned out it was a twenty by twenty or something. He sort of seems to just be turning as he hits it. Yeah, mm. it does seem like there was a bit. Of but a the thing is, all these all these matches in this era were called on the fly anyway. Ric Flair just called it in the ring as it went along, and Barry yeah. Windham would go along with it. And they have the, they as you'll see as the matches go on, they have these clear set moves that they like to do and they'll put them in and out throughout the match and but after um, after that moment Wyndham has the advantage for a fair while and he's working mm-hmm. over the legs he's got the Boston crab on the go mm-hmm. he um briefly loses at the advantage and Flair throws him out of the ring and he starts bleeding but yeah both then... men bleed in this match which felt unnecessary to me it seemed like the whole thing was pushing on the exhaustion and the long run. It wasn't, I guess, like I associate blood with anger or violence, and it's not a particularly violent match, you know. No, it's it's very much it's a very wrestling orientated wrestling match, uh, unlike some of the ones we've covered recently, like your Brody and your Hansons and what have you. The blood, I I get Wyndham bleeding because you want like your babyface to have another obstacle and blood loss is another obstacle um when flair bleeds later on it just seems like a it seems like a tit for tat leveler more than it does like a storyline enhancer do you know what i mean in that mm. sense he yeah. it as well it just seems like because he's just chucked into the ring post to um get flair to bleed it may have even been like act pure accidental, um, potentially, but it, it the blood doesn't sew into the story neatly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's also interesting to just I guess that's just how Flair worked in those days. The, the thought was bleed red for money green. You know, uh, it's a great visual. Like no one, can, like, if you've got the tool in the toolbox, you'll, mm. you'll you will use it. It's, it's interesting because obviously the, the critics of Flair, like your Bret Hart, they'll always say he repeats the same spots over and over again. He has the same match over and over again. And in many ways they have a point, but if the match is this amazing, does it matter really if it's the same match over and over again? Um, well, people keep hiring Jose Mourinho. Mm. You know what you're going to get there. Yeah. People will watch seasons two and three of like... Um, comedy panel like comedy uh, sketch shows even though the catchphrases are still going to be the same talent shows follow the same format every single year um <laughs> but it's interesting seeing what rick flair does and what he actually doesn't do he doesn't do the flair flop in no, this no, match he doesn't no. do the face first full oversell moments he does do the flip he does get whipped into the buckles and flip over the top rope and he does jump from the top rope and tries a cross body and he does get caught with a press slam another time uh, he he does beg off, but only the one. Only very like slightly, like a light mm. smattering of begging off. But it's interesting seeing what he also does that you don't necessarily associate with Ric Flair. He does a pile driver at one point, which he seemed to have to adjust quite a bit because of the size of Rick, of Barry Windham. Uh, yeah, you know, if he, like... if he was going to try and do if he was going to do a Lioness Asuka jumping pile driver, Barry Windham's head would have hit the mat a be long a time before Ric Flair would have. Yeah. Um, he also does a little. Kev, he does a Kevin Sullivan double stomp to the gut as well. Oh, yeah, no, like, a proper little vicious bastard. He looked in that mm. moment. Mm. The, the pole driver. It's weird. He gets him up and then he starts to start sitting down, but he does it in like a sta- like two or three stages. Mm. You know, it's like um, 
It's like he was buffering for yeah. like a split sec. So yeah, it's really the, the structure of the match is that of the, um, the the champion who carries himself as the best against the local hero. That's essentially what this is. That classic NWA World Heavyweight Champion going around from territory to territory. Uh, do you have anything to add before I get to the finish, uh, Simon? Or uh, well, I was going to say like the way they build towards the finishing section is yeah. uh, really good. Flair finally gets in the figure four. Uh, Wyndham is in it for quite a long time manages to flip um, himself onto his stomach, reversing the pressure. Yes, so Flair, the hole, yeah. So Flair gets his knees uh, worked over, considering he'd already missed a uh, knee drop earlier in the match. Uh, Flair's knees are already like got a little bit of damage to them. But then, it's as Wyndham himself goes for a knee drop after being in the figure four, and misses, that's when it sort of starts the finishing segment, the hot dog, you know, that's when we're going yeah. home, so to speak. And it's really, I, I like a lot of the last third of the match. Mm. It seems like they're trying to go for the big move, the big finishing move, and there's, they sell the exhaustion. Uh, they are both slower to hit, and therefore the opponent's able to dodge a move, but partly because the opponent's taking longer, but also maybe because both of them know whoever hits the next big spot. You know, Wyndham missed the top rope elbow drop. Ric Flair missed the knee drop. Uh, Wyndham goes for a splash, and Ric Flair puts his knees up. Um, Wyndham hits uh, his flying lariat, I think, at one point, but Ric Flair's able to put his feet on the ropes. An interesting thing, actually, with that is that three times in this match, um, Flair gets his foot on the ropes to break up the pin. Uh, One is quite early in the match, and it's interesting because I think now the foot on the rope is used very late in a match to emphasize a sense of the wrestler doesn't have the energy in them anymore to kick out of the hold or the move, mm-hmm. but they're fortunate because of the ring awareness they were able to save themselves at the last minute. Whereas or the, this... uh, the guy doing the pinning is unfortunate that he yeah, just got his yeah. ring positioning wrong, and he would have beat the guy yeah. if the move had been hit yeah. two moves Classic... to the right. Classic example recently, well, not even that recent anymore, I suppose, is when Neville hit the red arrow on um, uh, Seth Rollins on an episode of Raw, and it looked like he might have won the world title, but Seth Rollins had his foot on the ropes, was it, I think? Uh, Yeah, he just managed to get his foot on the rope. Or Kevin Owens getting one finger on the rope to uh, break out of the uh, the walls of Jericho. Uh, Whereas with this, I think it's more of a case of Ric Flair knows where he is in the ring, so he's not going to expend any extra energy if just putting a foot on the rope is going to break a pinfall up. Oh, well, why would you? It's it's the smart thing to do. What did you think of Gordon Soley's commentary in the match? Uh, and with Mike Graham as well. I did. Li- I liked the commentary. Um, I liked the, the soup plays. Did you enjoy the soup plays? I did enjoy the soup plays. I also, en- I, what I enjoyed most was the way at the start of the match, they were talking about like little things, like when they're doing like a little, um, trading back and forth with the wrist lock and they've both got the wrist lock above their heads, mm. they emphasise the fact that, oh, because Wyndham's the taller man, even though Flair's more experienced, Wyndham's more likely to win out this one. Mm. And that comes to pass. Gordon Soli does a really good explanation of the effectiveness of the sleeper hold, I remember, at one point. Yeah. And he says the fan shouldn't try this at home, he's getting the carotid arteries and the yeah, blood flow. Yeah, the carotid flow. artery, yeah. yeah. He, he really goes into the detail of why it's a terrible idea for kids to do it. <laughs> does Gordon Soli's lack of emotion bother you? Because, like, you've got the usual Ric Flair, you know, you think how would Gordon Soley have called 
good God almighty, good God almighty, as God is my witness, he's broken in half. He'd have been like, oh, and Mick Foley is taking, Mankind is taking a, a terrible fall. He looks like he's really badly hurt. The com- the commentary had a really like nice sporting feel to yeah. it, like a serious feel. He has that sense of like the classic announcers of each sport, you know, the Howard Cosells and yeah. all of those. Whereas now they're all of the same ESPN's Sports Center voices. Oh my God, that was an amazing shot! Like you hear the same voice in every single Everything, sport. Yeah, but no, no, I li- I like the commentary. I think it was. Um... As I say, it gave like a sporty, gritty seriousness to it. Mm. Not hokey or anything like that. Like, it's just what you wanted. It enhanced it rather than detract it. Um, so go on. I'm I had a little bit of point, confu- a point of confusion towards the finish where mm-hmm. Gord, one of them, I can't remember if it is Graham or Soli, when the ref has been uh, knocked down, um, Wyndham goes and hits his uh, top rope drop kick. And one of them mentions that top rope moves, something to do with top rope moves being banned? No, like I don't think that's right. I think what there is is that being thrown over the top rope is illegal. That might be where you were confusing it. Mm-hmm. In the NWA, the rules are that if you're thrown over the top rope and sent out of the ring, then that's an automatic disqualification. Uh, it's just an illegal thing to do. And it's really the basis of all of the famous dusty finishes of that era where a ref will go down, Flair will throw a guy out over the top rope, the guy comes back in the ring, pins Ric Flair with the second referee, but the first referee saw the first disqualification-causing move, and so the decision is made that he should have been disqualified so the rest of the match shouldn't have happened, and therefore Ric Flair loses, but he keeps the belts. And they use that finish way too many times for way too long a period of time to keep Flair as the champ, but the theory was keep the challenger strong. I guess Um, it would work more in territory days with, like, it access. did, but it was also just it, it became so frustrating. Just the you know you go back to that every all the time. That's why I think maybe DQ and countouts and controversial finishes could be used more frequently now, but not too frequently. Mm. So I think there's a balancing point that maybe they don't do enough of now, and too many people get pinned when They've they gone should too really far be the other protected way. a bit more. Yeah, drawing uh, as a concept, anyway, has gone on the decline. Yeah, and this is wrestled like you're expecting it to go to a 60-minute draw, and it doesn't. At about the 45, 48-minute point, Ric Flair does one of his other favourite, uh, quite dangerous spots where he does a crossbody that sends both of them out of the ring. And they both sort of stop the other one getting into, back into the ring, and they're brawling with each other. And at least quite a quick counter. It's really an awkward fall as well. Mm, when mm. That happens. Well, you can't, you can't not make that awkward, really. Yeah. I mean, Wyndham doesn't seem fully comfortable with it, but you're right, because he's the one sort of effectively taking a back bump with another dude on top of him in slow motion. Yeah, you've got all of Ric Flair's weights on top of you as you're leaving the ring. You're a tall guy anyway, yeah. so you've got to... Yeah, you don't know where Ric Flair's going to end up when he gets when he lands on the ring, out of the ring. And also, on in some ways, floor the, low, as well. the lower no speed can't help you, because at lower speed, you're more prone to over-rotation. mm mm well, these guys know what they're doing, you know. Well, and they, they, I mean, I like God knows Ric Flair do, does this, did this spot for years and years and years when they needed a count out finish of some description. Yeah, uh, he, he, you know, I know he uses it against Ricky Steamboat in future matches on this show. I think he uses it on Barry Windham in future matches in this show. Um, so I don't think I have anything else to add at this point. It finishes with a double count out. Ric Flair leaves the champ, but 
Wyndham, the local hero, lives to fight another day. Um, oh, Rick, uh, Wyndham did a fantastic missile drop kick. I didn't know at uh, one point. Again, taking advantage of those long legs, and yet he was using agile moves. Like I said, he wasn't working as a monster. He was almost working. He was almost like a like a Sean Waltman almost levels yeah. of fire. He has a good pace. range of motion. To yeah, him. yeah, yeah. He was just a great, great his wrestler. His hip toss, because of his height, his hip toss mm. looks really good. Yeah, he was a great wrestler, and we'll have fun talking about more of his matches as we go on. Um, but I guess the big question, Simon, is would you give this match five stars? No. Um, I think the pacing was just a little too subdued. Uh, I get why, due to the length of match. Um, the finish just seemed a little bit undercooked in the sense of when I think they're outside the ring, I just personally think there should be a little bit more ferociousness in there, like attempts to keep each other out of the ring and their hits to each other. I get that they're trying to play. I guess that's all exhaustion. exhaustion. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, it just didn't, it didn't seem. Would you have rather it be almost like a last man standing finish where neither of them can will themselves up. They've just both lost all the energy. Well, yeah, if you're going to play exhaustion, that's, that's more to me can be more of a logical conclusion but then the flip side to that from a booking standpoint could be well they hadn't really hit anything big enough to each other to warrant that and would that actually make both guys look weaker when we're trying to protect both guys so I, I can play devil's advocate against myself on that point I, I agree I wouldn't give it five stars but it's still an extremely good match and uh, they're both, you know, just phenomenal conditioning on both men. Oh, absolutely, um, thanks. Yeah. So that will do it for this episode. If people want to get in touch with me with their opinions, it's Lorcan Mullen. Look me up on all the social medias. I'll be there in some capacity, I would assume. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Apple, N for Noggin Knocker. <laughs> <laughs> Although the noggin, not the knocker. Um, Simon, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, people can mainly get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Uh, that's the number free, um, not the words. I'm not posh like a check. Uh, so named because this is the first of three singles matches between Flair and Wyndham we have, we have talked about. Mm. Because both men will appear in later episodes, not against each other, but in different capacities. Um... But the next episode we'll be doing will be very much a, will be a mini episode because this is the first time where we'll be talking about a match where we haven't been able to watch it from start to finish. The only uh, version of it that we've ever found has been a highlights package. Uh, but we'll talk about what we can, and that is a match from the NWA Crockett Cup 1986 between the Fantastics and the Sheep Herders, a.k.a. the Bushwhackers. Yeah, it's difficult so, to think that the Bushwhackers... Yeah. Um, I think we were talking about this when we were doing our research for this project there. I possibly Maybe we'll, only... save this for the, we'll save that for the episode. We'll save that for the mini-episode, yeah. Ooh, TBC, listeners. TBC. But until that time, thank you for letting us tell you something. On behalf of Simon Cross and myself, have a great time. Until the next time. Sick.
some of yourself. Do 